Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. To the, the waters of coaching, uh, whether it's football or whether it's basketball, like one of my favorite things about coaching is when you're working with an athlete and you've tried to help them do something or learn something or believe in themselves and then they do it and like their face just lights up, right? Like they get so excited when they come off the floor. And I've noticed that like whether you're watching little kids and like maybe they hit the ball for the first time and like they forget to run to the base but they look at you and they're like, I did it! You're like, run! (laughs) You know? Or even like thinking uh, at the high school level that I've coached and you're watching people you know, the, these athletes work on different nuances of the game, and then, and then they do it like they hit that free throw at the pressure moment, or they go on strong against a 6'9 guy and get an and one. Like, like, those are just really cool moments. And one of my favorite things in that is I love to encourage the players. Like, all day, I, I could just be like, you're doing great, keep it up, this is awesome, this is great, this is great. But there's another side to coaching that is equally important. And it's funny because sometimes you'll hear athletes say, I want you to like coach me. I want you to tell me when I'm getting it wrong. I want you to tell me when things aren't right. And then you step into that and they realize, I don't think I actually want that. (laughs) Have you experienced that, right? Like, yeah, be tough on me. And then you're like, okay, well that wasn't good. Well, okay, not that tough on me, (laughs) you know? But, But to be a good coach, I'm learning, like I'm, too, I'm in my second year, so I'm still a rookie, but, but I'm learning that, that you do have to have a balance of both, right? You've got to undergird it with encouragement that you can do it, dream big, fight big, pursue, be, be all that you can be, the old army adage. But in order to get that, we've got to recognize that there are some things we've got to work on. That you don't do everything perfect. That, that like there are aspects of your game, or I'm sure Rice is, you're still running. It's like, man, I gotta come out of the blocks better, or I gotta finish my last 100 instead of my last 70, you know, like all these different things. And so I'm gonna be honest, today is one of those days that we're gonna look at a very tough passage. Today is going to be a day that we're gonna look as best as we can into a passage that sets up a teaching, a fundamental principle that travels through the rest of Scripture that is really difficult to hear. And we just need to be honest about that. But I never want us to lose that behind it all, just like with a coach, that, that, that is there for the good of their players and the good of their team that says, I want to encourage, but I've got to be honest, that God in a much bigger way says, I have all of this love. I am love, as a matter of fact, the book of John says. And there's all of these amazing, rich, beautiful truths that should just 
you know, like things like we're made in the image of God. We were made for him. And like God loved us so much that he made like peaches for like 10 minutes a day. Tastes really good, you know, and like strawberries and there's colors and there's music. All of things, these things that encourage us. But, at the, but, but also God is really good in telling us hard truths that we need to hear. And today is one of those. We're going to look at the passage out of Genesis 19 of Sodom and Gomorrah as we walk through the book of Genesis. And to be honest, guys, this is part of the reason why Darren and I, are we didn't invent this, but are in the tradition, the Christian tradition of going, we just primarily want to preach through books of the Bible. We don't want to, we're not clever enough to come up with like nine easy steps to a better marriage or, you know, six ways to be, you know, healthy and spiritually vibrant. Like, we're, I, I, I'm out if that's the case. But what we want to do is we just want to look at God's word and go, what does it say? And when we walk through books of the Bible, it causes us to come into confrontation with passages that the Lord has put in the Bible that on our own we're probably not going to get to, right? And I think part of our devotional culture that we have, and and I'm not an anti-devotional guy per se, but I think one of the challenges of our modern devotional culture is we buy a book that's filled with someone else's thoughts about their time with God. And typically at the top of the page is one scripture verse lifted out of context. And then they write a page or two about that verse. And then we flip to the next day. And there's another verse from a completely different part of the Bible that is lifted out of context, put at the top of the page. And then we never really understand what the storylines of books are. We don't understand how those books and those storylines fit and build this storyline of the whole scriptures, which is why one of our primary uh, outcomes of discipleship, like what a disciple does, that we want to help when we talk about equipping all of Christ's people, is that we learn to read the Bible in the context of community and read through books. Like, even pick hard books. I'm reading through the book of Judges right now, right? I think my son Evan told me, you're reading through Jeremiah, right? Like, like you know, it, with the college students, we're walking through the book of Ephesians. Like, reading books and learning to read what these say, it begins to build these massive things that we can step back and go, oh, I'm starting to see how these pieces fit together. And so as we're journeying through the book of Genesis... It just comes to the point that this is the Sunday that we are in Genesis chapter 19. Thank you for giving this one to me, Derek. I appreciate it. <clears throat> just wait till I plan the next book. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but let's review for a minute about how we got to Genesis 19. So if you remember, um, God comes to a man named Abram. And we read this in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, Darren and I consistently reference it because it is a massively important chapter in the Bible. All of the scriptures are God-breathed. They are all profitable for teaching and correcting and rebuking and pointing us to salvation. But there are points within the scriptures that are are like significantly significant among the significance. (laughs) 
put, say that three times fast. Um, Genesis 12 is one of those because what God does is we see from chapter 1 and 2, we see that God made all things. He made us for his glory, that, that he, he gave us good work to do in the world, that we were to live in relationship with God and in harmony with one another in a perfect world. And then man decided, I actually don't want to submit to my maker. I want to be my own God. I want to define my own identity, my own truth. I want to do what I want. I don't want, I, it's all about me. And that brings the fall. And the fall has affected and still affects to this day everything. It is why this world is broken. We talked a little bit about this last week. We've got to remember we live in an incredibly broken world. And all of us as people are not who God originally intended us to be. And yet God gives these promises. But I'm not going to leave it that way. You broke it but I'll fix it. And he gives these hints of promise along the way. And one of these is that he promises that the seed from the woman will come out and he will destroy the, our tempter and he will overturn the curse of sin even though this, this child that will be born from a woman will suffer himself a wound. Right? Well, we learn later in Genesis 12 that God calls this man named Abram and says to him, I'm going to make a relationship between you and me. I've chosen you. I'm going to bring you to myself. And I'm promising through you, Abram, that I'm going to give you a son. And through you, I'm going to make this people. And this people is going to get a land. And, and so, so, you so we are in relationship. You're going to have a son, and, they're gonna and, and he's going to have other sons, and this massive nation is going to be developed, and this nation is going to be my people that I've chosen out of the world. You're going to relate to me in a unique and special way that is different from everyone else. And, and, and we read later on that this people is to be a light to the world that live in this place and then as we move the narrative on a little further, we see that God's promise was that actually through this people, that, that, that the true seed of the woman would be born, who is, who is the Messiah. And this Messiah would come, and he would be the redeemer of all the nations. And so that's what the promise that begins to be laid in Genesis chapter 12. And so from Genesis 12 all the way through Genesis 18, we see God beginning to relate to, or God walking with Abram, confirming his promises with him. You know, even though Abram's going to have to wait a long time for these promises to be fulfilled, and there's going to be a lot of moments where it doesn't look like a single promise is actually going to come to fruition. Like Abraham's going to come to these frustrations to be like, hey, did, did I miss this? Like, you promised me a son. It's been like a decade. I don't have a son. I'm getting older. Things are getting worse. The world around me is getting worse. And God's like, no, I've got you. I've got you. And he reaffirms the promise, and he reaffirms the promise, and he continues to hold Abram. And then we get to chapter 18. And what happens in chapter 18 is we see that Abram is, is there at his home where he's camping in the, or he, he's kind of pitched his tent as a, as a, as a sojourner in the, in, in the land that God was going to promise to give them. And we see that these three visitors come and visit Abram, Abraham. And we learn, spoiler, you know, that, that these three visitors, one is God himself and two angels. And Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they, they, they show hospitality to these three visitors. And they sit together. And at this meal, God 
clarifies his promise and says, that son that I promised you, you're going to have him about this time next year. Like the time's coming, Abraham. That seed that I promised, it's, he's coming. And about this time next year, you're going to have him. And his wife laughs like she's listening at the door. She's like, what, 100 at this point, 90? And she's listening at the door. She's, she laughs like, okay, I'm going to have a baby, <laughs> right? And God's like, wait a minute. No, no, your wife laughed. No, this is really going to happen. But then what happens in, in, in chapter 18, verse 16, things begin to shift where it moves now into the, into the narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because after the meal is done, God had promised that you're going to have a son this time next year. Now the three visitors get up and they start to walk towards Sodom. And what, what happens is, is that as they make their way to Sodom, Abraham gets up and walks with them, kind of showing, continuing to show them hospitality as he kind of walks them out. And it is here that we read that the Lord speaks to himself. We, we get some like internal dialogue of what God says to himself as, as God and the angels are walking towards Sodom. And God says, you know, should, I, should, should we tell Abraham what we're about to do? Because I've chosen Abraham to be a great nation and a great people and to live righteously and, and with justice in the world. And then he tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy the city of Sodom. And we see this remarkable moment where now Abraham is standing before the Lord. These two angels continue to journey on. And Abraham is standing there before the Lord. And he begins to plead for the righteous people who may live in Sodom and in Gomorrah. And he says, oh God, I, I know I'm treading on dangerous ground here. But, but he asks this really, uh, 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 you know, the, these very penetrating questions about Sodom and Gomorrah and, and how God is going to work in the midst of them and what does that mean for the righteous? What does that mean for what he's going to do in the work? But before we kind of get into a little bit of the substance of what Abraham does and into the substance of chapter 19, it's really important that we remember this from a biblical narrative. Sodom and Gomorrah are warnings to us throughout the entire scriptures. Sodom and Gomorrah are referenced several times. Deuteronomy 29, Isaiah 1, uh, a few different places in Isaiah, throughout the book of, uh, several times in the book of Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, we'll get to it in a minute. It's all, in the New Testament, we read about Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah is always looked at as a cautionary tale and a warning to us. Because what these cities represent, what this region represents, is sin wickedness and rebellion against God. Sin, wickedness, and rebellion against God. And they also represent <clears throat> what God does to sin, wickedness, and rebellion. So we got to remember, for example, in Genesis chapter 13, verse 13, when Abraham and his, and his nephew Lot... They separate because they have so, much, so many possessions and they're starting to fight. And Abraham's like, maybe we shouldn't share the same ground because we're like competing for the same grazing pasture land here. Why don't you go one way, I'll go the other way. And Lot chooses Sodom. 
he chooses the valley of Sodom because it looked awesome. It looked rich and it looked fertile. So he's like, I'll go there. And in chapter 13, verse 13, it says that Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. So, we, so, so, so you know, we, we've also got to understand that, in fact, in Genesis chapter 18, verse 20, God says that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and that their sin is very grave. So, like, their wicked deeds that they were doing, imagine it was like smoke going up to the Lord, and that smoke was an outcry saying that rebellion and wickedness and sin is there, and God understands this, and God sees it for what it is. If we fast forward in the, in the Old Testament, we see, if we go forward about 900 years after this moment, and we go to the book of Ezekiel, for example, in chapter 16, verses 48 to 50, God said that Sodom's sin was pride, that they had excess food and prosperous ease, but they did not help the poor and the needy, that they were haughty in their posture and they did abomination before the Lord. The book of Jeremiah in chapter 23 hints that these cities were full of adultery, that they were liars, that they strengthened the hands of evildoers, and that no one turned from their wickedness. In the New Testament, book of Jude, in verse 7, it says that Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as the entire surrounding cities, that, that, that they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. So as we take this picture of Sodom and Gomorrah, we see that everything about the culture, everything about how they lived and what they did was a complete rejection of God. And historically speaking, through the traditional understanding of Sodom and Gomorrah in, in, in ancient Jewish thinking, all the way up through the New Testament, that was highlighted, typified, and most clearly seen in how they used their bodies. They took their bodies and lived for their own pleasures. They took their bodies and they exchanged what God desired to be happening between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, and they consumed and burned with lust and wanted to have unnatural desires with one another. This is why the Christian church and why, why Christianity throughout the ages have stood against things like homosexuality and rampant sexual promiscuity. It's not because we want to be cosmic killjoys. It's because sex was given for the beauty of marriage between a man and a woman because it symbolizes something. It symbolizes the relationship that Christ has with his church. It symbolizes the beautiful unity of a procreative act and a love between two people that are complements but different. And the way we use our bodies is a critically important issue in the scriptures because what we do with our bodies ultimately tells us who it is that we worship. Because our bodies were made to worship but they were made to worship the one true living God, that we walk according to his ways and according to his purposes, and that what we do with our bodies, in our work, in our play, in our sexual practice, in everything, was meant to be lived for the glory of God. And Sodom said, I'm living for the glory of myself. So I'm not going to help the needy. I'm not going to bow my knee to anybody. 
And I can engage in sexual activity with anyone I want. Because if it feels good to me, I'm going to do it. And it was because of this, the picture we get of these two cities is total wickedness and rebellion. And, it is, and, and so these two angels that continue to walk towards Sodom began their journey. And there Abram is before the Lord. And as Abram begins to wrap his mind around what God is going to do, as chapter 18 comes to a close, we see that, that Abraham intercedes for the righteous who may live in the midst of this wickedness. And he says to God in verse 18, or verse 23 of chapter 18, he knows, oh God, you're going to go destroy this place. And he's like, but will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? God, are you just going to go in and levy haymakers across the whole thing indiscriminately and kill everyone along with it? Are even the righteous going to be swept away? Do the righteous have any preserving element for the rest of this city? And he goes, God, what if there's 50 righteous people in that town? I know it's wicked, but what if there's 50 in there? Will you wipe them out? And then God's like, no. And then he goes down, what if there's 45 what if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? This is an extremely important question that Abraham asks God. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? The Lord reassures Abraham that he will do no such thing. In fact... He, as the judge of all the earth, will do what is just. Let that sit with you for a minute. God will always do what is right. God will always do what is right. And it is in this moment that we pick up the narrative in Genesis chapter 19. And I'm just going to read it. I'm going to make some observations. Then we'll do the so what, and then we'll go home. But I, let's just hear these words. Genesis chapter 19, starting in verse 1. It says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Remember, Lot is Abram's nephew. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So let's pause for a minute. Here's what we see happening. Lot, who is at the gate of the city, this typically means, could mean most likely that Lot, even though he's not from Sodom, is probably one of the elders of Sodom, because that's where the elders and the leaders of the town would be. Uh, that's one theory. Another theory is that Lot had sheep and goats, and they, they, they might have been out in the pastures of that day, and Lot was waiting by the gate for his shepherds to come in to kind of get the final report of the day. Or a third interpretation is, is that Lot was sitting at the gate looking for visitors because he knows the rampant wickedness of Sodom and is looking for people to find safety in his home. 
But either way, he sees these angels come in, and he's like, come stay with me. Lot shows tremendous hospitality to these angels, just like Abraham showed hospitality to his three visitors. Come stay with me. I'm going to cook you a meal. You're going to find safety here with me. And don't lose sight of this. It's evening. Okay? The time of day is going to have symbolic importance. So now we pick it up in verse 4. Before they lay down, so now it's nighttime. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we might know them. Lot went out to meet went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge? Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the man, the, the men, meaning the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot back into the house with them and shut the door, and they, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. This is a very disturbing scene. Dinner's over, night has fallen, the angels, everybody's going to settle into bed, and the men of the city come. And they're like, bring out these men. Because we want to do unspeakable things to them to gratify our own pleasure. Now, there's a, there, there is a custom in the, in the Near East, or in the ancient Near East at this time, that said if you brought someone into your home, that, that you personally took responsibility for their safety. You do everything you can, even to the detriment of your own self, to help them to make sure that they are safe and cared for at your house. But Lot does not come out as an honorable man here. Honorable intentions. I want to protect these men. But now he looks at this mob, and the only solution he can come up with is, take my daughters. <laughs> Do to them what you want. Man, how mad would you be, daughters? <laughs> like, so there is just, at the cover of night, the wickedness of Sodom is on full display. And Lot, who is wrestling with this wickedness and uncomfortable by it, and this mob is getting out of control, he himself makes a terrible decision. And then they get angry at Lot. And they're like, who are you to judge us? Who do you think you are? We're going to be worse to you now than we were going to be to them. And then at the, as the height is getting worse, these angels grab Lot and pull him in the house and shut the door and they strike with blindness the men who had come to exercise wickedness. In the cover of darkness is where sin comes out because sin loves the dark. Sin loves the dark. 
Then in verse 12, it says, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against this people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, Who are you or who were to marry his daughters? And he says to them, Up, get out of, the, out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. And as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. As they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my Lord. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city is called Zoar. So now the angels are revealing to Lot, we're going to destroy this place. Do you have anyone else that you can go get? And so he goes to these two guys that were betrothed to his daughters, and he tells them, the city's going to be destroyed. God's going to destroy it. You've got to get out of here. He gives them a right warning, and isn't it telling how they responded? Oh, man, you're just joking. There's no danger. Stop, stop, being, stop being dramatic. Everything's fine. And then Lot goes back home, and it's like he doesn't take the warnings seriously either. He's lingering at home. He's got his feet up. He's drinking his coffee. He's like, hey, I'll go home here in about five. I'll leave here in just a couple of minutes. And it got to the point where the angels were like, you got to go. And they literally grab his hand and walk them outside the city because God was being merciful to them. And then they let him escape to another place. And as they get there, verse 25, 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew the cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the, midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Verses 23 to 29, here's what we see. God's judgment fell. And it was all-consuming. And everything was destroyed. And yet, God remembered Abraham in the midst of his judgment. 
Lot is spared because of another. Abraham is to Lot what the hypothetical righteous remnant would have been to Sodom, commentator Victor Hamilton said. Abraham pleaded, if there's ten righteous people, will you spare the city? Well, there weren't ten righteous people. And yet because of Abraham's intercession, God remembered Abraham, and that allowed Lot to be saved from it. Because God will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. So what are we to do with this? This should be a two-parter because i got to stop. <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah stand as a warning to us. Here's my question. Do you hear it? I sincerely play, pray and plead with us to hear the warning of Scripture. Guys, God will judge sin. And God will judge sinners. We don't like to talk about this very often, but the scriptures are clear. God hates sin. He hates it. He absolutely hates it. And I pray that you and I do not take these gracious warnings as examples of mere jesting like Lot's proposed son-in-laws did. Oh, that's just a preacher preaching fire and brimstone. Everything's fine. Stop. We're not that bad. Things aren't that bad. God's, it's been 2,000 years. He's not coming. But in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37, I encourage you to go read this. I don't have time to, to dive into this text. But here's what God, what Jesus is saying about the end of days. There will be a time when the end of days will be here. And Jesus says, here's what's going to be like. Life's going to go on. People are going to be getting married, working, sowing crops, doing their things. Everybody's going to think life is just going to keep going. And then one day, the end is going to come. And God will rain fire down on the earth. And it won't be on a couple cities in a valley. It will be across all the cosmos. And God will purge the world of sin and sinners. And he says, don't be found among the sinners. But rest assured, God will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. This is what 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 to 10 says. Lot stands an example to us, even though he's not a very good character in this passage. He is still called righteous by the apostle Peter because at least he was distressed by the sin around him. He made terrible choices, but he was delivered out of it. And that stands as an example to us, 2 Peter says, that God will punish sin, and he will save the righteous. But how do we know if we're righteous? That's a big question. And I think this is a question. I promise I'm going to stop. But this is a really big question because, can I be honest? I think there is a malaise that can happen across this country and I think there is a malaise that can happen across our own community right here to think that all of us are going to heaven when we die. And the scriptures are exceptionally clear on this point. That isn't true.
We are born under the wrath of God, Ephesians chapter 2 says. We are born in rebellion against God. And we are destined for the same destruction as Sodom. And Sodom and Gomorrah stand as a warning that God will judge that sin and he will judge it on you. But like, because like Lot, we need to be rescued. Like Lot, we need someone to make intercession for us. And praise God, we have a rescuer and we have an intercessor. And his name is Jesus Christ. He came and rescued us by satisfying God's wrath on himself that was marked for you. He came and interceded for his people and stands in the gap and says, I will save and pray for and redeem my people because I have died in their place. And when we place our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ alone, his righteousness is given to us and our sins are forgiven and we are made righteous in Christ. That is a guaranteed promise of the scriptures. Not because we are inherently righteous, but because Jesus is and he gives us his righteousness. And redemption is seen in a new life that stands out and grows increasingly distressed by a broken world. But one day when God's judgment falls, the people that belong to Jesus will stand before the throne of God and not point to any acts they've done on their own. Not try to impress God with how many old ladies they've helped across the street. But they will simply, with our grateful heads bowed, say, accept me because of him. And Jesus will stand up and say, he's mine. So here's my final question for us. And I really pray that you do serious business with this question. Are you in Christ? Have you chosen to place all of your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ to rescue you from the wrath that you and I deserve? And is it your desire to follow him, however imperfectly, all the days of your life? Because if that's you, Jesus says, I have borne the wrath for you, and you are destined for hope. And death no longer has a say over you anymore. If that's not you here today, will you call to Jesus to save you? Because here's the deal. His arms are open, and he's ready to save all who come to him in faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son. And God, my apologies for going long. Well, God, these are weighty issues. These are heavy things. And God, I thank you that you love us enough to warn us. That you love us enough to tell us the truth. That God, we do need to be rescued. But God, thank you that you have rescued your people. 
That you didn't rescue us by saying, here's all the things you got to do. Here's the way you've rescued us by, by doing for us what we cannot do in your son, Jesus Christ. And oh God, I pray every one of us in this room would place all of our hope, faith, and trust in that. Which forgives us of our sin, makes us new, and destines us for righteousness. God, we love you. May we hear the warning, may we receive the salvation, and may we live with hope. In Christ's name we pray, amen.